All right, good evening. good evening. It's nice to start a new week here at Marival again. This is our fifth presentation on the book of Daniel. And if you're just coming, you're actually still actually coming at a good time because we haven't really gotten into some of the more hardcore prophecies in Daniel 7 and 8 where we get into some of the, the kingdoms and the prophecies and the dates and the end time applications. So we still have a lot of good ground to cover. Thank you for the introductions. I also enjoyed listening to the quiz again and also for the music this evening. So before we start, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, for the beginning of a new week. And I pray that you would be with us in a special way this evening as we go through Daniel chapter 6. May we learn things from this story that will help us to understand you better and of your faithfulness and of the lives that you would have us to be living. And please speak through me. This is my prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So tonight... Our topic is based on Daniel chapter 6, and the title of the message is Daniel in the Lion's Den. Now, how many of you grew up as children hearing the story of Daniel in the Lion's Den? I think most of us did. I hope that you will see a deeper significance to this story than perhaps you have seen before. And so we are going to get right in to Daniel chapter 6 tonight. And let's turn to Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. Now, if you look at the verse just before this, Daniel 5.31, we see Darius the Median was the king of Medo-Persia who helped to lead to the downfall of Belshazzar and the kingdom of Babylon in Daniel chapter 5. So here in chapter 6, the new empire is setting up its kingdom. So Darius is setting up 120 princes which should rule over the whole kingdom. So here are the political leaders that are going to reign over the new kingdom of Medo-Persia. 120 princes. Now verse 2. And over these three presidents. So you have 120 princes and then three presidents will rule over the 120. So you could probably say that of the three presidents they would have 40 princes each. And notice this. Of these three presidents of whom Daniel was first. Now this is interesting. Usually when a new kingdom or empire takes over, they kill all of the previous political leaders. Now, do you remember what happened in the, the feast when Daniel interpreted the handwriting on the wall? To what position in the empire did Belshazzar promote Daniel to? Third. To third in the kingdom. 
And of course, we talked about how that Belshazzar and his father, Nabonidus, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, were co-regents or co-kings of Babylon. So Belshazzar couldn't make Daniel any higher than third. But it's interesting, we come to the new kingdom, and not only does Daniel keep his life, he receives a promotion. He goes from being third in the kingdom to second in the kingdom. Once again, it pays to be faithful to God. So Daniel was first of the three presidents, that the princes might give account to them, unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. So here Daniel, as you have a change in kingdoms, is now preferred so highly by the new king in the new kingdom that Darius is saying, I want to put Daniel over the entire realm of my kingdom. Daniel must have been an incredible person, was he not? Yeah. He made such an impression on the new king that he was placed at the very top of the new kingdom. Now notice, Ellen White makes commentary on Daniel's character. This is Christ's Object Lessons, page 356. Only by faithfulness in the little things can the soul be trained to act with fidelity under larger responsibilities. So, you know, you may be saying, you know, if I was in a higher position, if I was the first elder, if I was the pastor, if I was the conference president, if I was the president or the prime minister of Trinidad, then I would be more careful in the way that I live my life. But because I'm not any one of those titles, I'll just kind of let everything go. And if God sees fit to place me in a higher position of responsibility at some point in my life, then I'll pay more attention. But that's not how Daniel lived. It says, God brought Daniel and his fellows into connection with the great men of Babylon that these heathen men might become acquainted with the principles of true religion. In the midst of a nation of idolaters, Daniel was to represent the character of God. Do you realize that some of you sitting here this evening have the opportunity, or actually I should say all of us here this evening, have the opportunity to represent God's character wherever we are. Whether it's in our family, or at work, or if, when, or if we are in higher positions of authority, we have the opportunity to represent God's character. Now, based on what we see in the life of Daniel, God was able to allow Daniel to be promoted to higher and higher positions because Daniel knew that, or that God knew that Daniel could be trusted to represent his character. How did he become fitted for a position of so great trust and honor? It was his faithfulness in the little things that gave complexion to his whole life. 
Remember, this is the same Daniel who purposed in his heart in chapter 1 that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat nor with the wine which he drank. It may have seemed like a small thing, but because Daniel was faithful there, we can see how his life progressed so that as greater challenges came, God was able to use him in a greater manner. He honored God in the smallest duties, and the Lord cooperated with him. So that's a lesson for us, is it not? Yes. You know, when we're cleaning our house, when we're keeping our room neat and clean, those are the little things. And as we are faithful in the little things, God will bless us with greater responsibilities. And here we see, now, the, the context of this quote, to be clear, was specifically related to when Babylon was the, the kingdom of the world. However, the principle applies to when Medo-Persia took over and Daniel became next in line to the king. Now, let's continue on, verses 4 and 5. You know, Daniel became promoted. Do you think everybody was happy about that? Let's see what verses 4 and 5 say. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men... We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Now, here you have to think about how these other presidents and princes are feeling. The two other presidents and the 120 princes. They most likely, these were the leading politicians of Medo-Persia. They had worked hard. They had schemed. They had planned. They might have even helped oversee the diverting of the river Euphrates so that the army could enter into Babylon and destroy that city. And now, instead of one of them being next in line to the king, some Hebrew captive who was part of the Babylonian kingdom is next in line. And they're like, what happened? How could Darius pass us over and put some Hebrew captive in front of us? This isn't right. And you know, considering that these were pagan men who did not serve God, this would be the natural way to think. This is how politicians work. Politicians are always working to step on someone else to get to the top. That's how politicians work. It doesn't matter which country you're from, whether it's the United States where I come from, they're already gearing up for the presidential election next year and people are already trying to tear down the current president, or whether it's here in Trinidad and you know all the back and out that goes on with the politicians down here, or whether it's in the United Kingdom or wherever, Politicians are always trying to put someone down so they can go higher. And that's what's happening here. But you know what? I sure hope that this doesn't happen in God's work. This kind of behavior should never be found in the work of God. But here we see you have these presidents and princes. They're trying to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. So this is how they initially try to get rid of Daniel. They say, okay. Every person we've ever met 
has something wrong with them. They have some secret sin. When nobody else is watching, they'll log on to a certain website on the internet and they'll go somewhere that if their spouse was with them or if someone else from church was with them, they would never go to that site. But you know what? We are so high up in the kingdom, we'll be able to spy on him and catch him when he does that. And then we'll be able to turn him into the king and the king will realize this guy isn't so great after all. Or maybe he isn't really faithful with his bank account. Maybe he's cheating the way he uses his funds and he's misappropriating the funds that the king has set him over. He's in charge of so much, he might be slipping some money from the king into his bank account. Let's see if he's doing something like that. Maybe he's working to bring the king down so he, he can take over. They thought of all sorts of different scenarios and they said, let's track him, let's follow him around, let's see everything that he does and once we follow him for a, a certain period of time, we'll be able to catch him in one of his habits and we'll be able to turn him in. Let me ask you a question. Let's just say that you, let's transport back in time because the kingdom of Medo-Persia as we studied in Daniel 2 was 539 to 331 BC. This is in the first year. So let's go back to 539 BC and let's just say that suddenly you become Daniel and you bring with you all of your characteristics, all of your habits, all of the things that you do, and you are second in line next to the king. And these guys, these presidents and princes, are able to track your life. How many of you would want to take Daniel's spot at this moment? These guys are on your case. They are out to find out something about you that will show that you're not really the person that you claim to be. Oh yes, you'll come to church. Yes, you'll smile and be nice. But when nobody else is looking, there's something deep and dark and nasty about you and they're going to catch you in it. But you know what? When they tracked Daniel like this, what happened? They could find none occasion nor fault for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. If those guys could have found something with Daniel, they would have found it, but they couldn't find it. Daniel was found to be without fault. So then they said, you know what, we're going to have to change our strategy. Verse 5, Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Now the way this passage is phrased, it can sound a little bit confusing. It almost sounds like they're saying, we can find him breaking the law of his God. But here's what they're really saying. This guy is so faithful that the only way we're going to get him is to make him stay faithful to the law of his God so that by being faithful to the law of his God, he will be going against the, the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Because he is so faithful, the one thing, if he has to choose between God and man, we know that he'll choose the law of his God. So that's how we can get him.
So that's what they're saying here in verse 5. Notice what Ellen White says. This is Review and Herald, February 8, 1881. The keen eyes of jealousy were fixed upon Daniel day after day. Their watchings were sharpened by hatred, yet not a word or act of his life could they make appear wrong. And still, he made no claim to sanctification. See, Daniel wasn't going around saying, hey, I'm perfect, everyone. Don't you see the blameless life that I'm living? But notice, but he did that which was infinitely better. He lived a holy, sanctified life. Daniel, a human being, lived a holy, sanctified life, and they could find no fault in him. The true test of sanctification is the daily deportment. The more blameless the life of Daniel, the greater was the hatred excited against him by his enemies. Now, does that not remind you of how Jesus was treated? The more blameless his life, the greater he was hated by the leaders of the Jewish nation. They were filled with madness because they could find nothing in his moral character or in the discharge of his duties upon which to base a complaint against him. And this is a lesson for us. In the duties that we are part of, in our work, we might be tempted to say, well, this doesn't matter because this is secular work. I'm not doing God's work at my job. So if I'm maybe not being completely honest, if I'm maybe not being as efficient as I should be, if I'm just being kind of lazy, this, that, or the other, it doesn't really matter so much because this isn't God's work. Is that true? We shouldn't think that way, should we? Everything that we do should bring glory to God's name and demonstrate God's character, that we will be faithful in even the little things. And Daniel, he gives us the example, he lived a holy, sanctified life which excited the hatred of his enemies. So let's see what they do. Let's go on to Daniel chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. So now they're here to sweet talk the king. Oh, king, you are so great. We're so glad you're our king. We like you so much. Continuing on, verse 7. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save or accept of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. Now notice what's happening here. First of all, they, they come to King Darius and they're here to make him feel good about himself. They're saying, oh, King Darius, live forever. We support you. You are our king. And then they say all the presidents of the kingdom, and they say they have, we've consulted together. Now that cannot be true because Daniel was one of the three presidents. So they're lying to the king. 
they say all the presidents, but cl clearly Daniel would not have agreed to this. Now notice, you have the presidents, the governors, the princes, the counselors, and the captains coming together, and they are coming together once again to form a law. So we saw in Babylon the union of church and state with the image in Daniel chapter 3 when all the people were commanded to bow down before the image when all the political leaders were there. And again in Daniel chapter 5 where all the political leaders worship the gods of gold, silver, brass, iron, wood, and stone. Here the political leaders come together and they get the king to sign a decree that you can only worship the king for 30 days. Once again, church and state come together and with it comes persecution because they are saying if you worship any other god or man during this time, you will be put to death. And here is a principle, and I haven't mentioned this in our series thus far, but whenever church and state come together, persecution of God's true people always follows. Because the state does not have in their heart the best purpose for God's people. They have in mind what's best for the state, not for God's people. So when church and state combine, that becomes very dangerous. And it's interesting we see that the law of the Medes and Persians could not be changed. And it's interesting, King Darius signed the decree. It's like the guy, these leaders come in and say, hey, this is something that all of the political leaders agree on, and this is to make you look good, just sign the decree. And he's thinking, okay, that's fine. I don't think anybody's going to care about this. And without thinking carefully, he signs a decree that he would regret later on. Let's go on to verses 10 through 13. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and he hid. Is that what it says? Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime or as he did before. You know, Daniel saw what had happened and instead of going and hiding in a closet, he continued to worship the true God of heaven now that a death decree has been placed upon his head if he would do so. And he does so openly three times a day as he always had. When a crisis came, nothing changed. So many times we think, you know what, right now I'm not spending time praying to God. The three times a day I pray to Him is just for my food. Other than that, I don't talk to Him. Daniel wasn't praying for his food here. Daniel was having close communion with God. And we say, right now I'm just praying for my food three times a day. But when the crisis comes, I'll really get close to God during that time. But Daniel shows that he was always close to God. And when the crisis came, nothing changed. He continued to pray to God the way that he always had. 
And if there's anything that we can learn from this, we should be close to God now. We should be praying to Him at least three times a day now. We shouldn't be waiting for some crisis that's coming in a future time. Now is the time to pray to God, to be close to Him. Continuing on, verse 11. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. So now they have finally found something to find fault with Daniel. They'd been tracking him day after day after day, and he never did anything wrong. Now they make a law that puts the law of the land up against the law of God, and they finally get Daniel in a trap. But up until now, they couldn't catch Daniel. Verse 12, Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within thirty days, save of thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Then answered they and said before the king, That Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee, O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh his petition three times a day. So here they're, they're out to get Daniel. Notice they didn't catch anybody else. They weren't concerned about anybody else. They just talk about Daniel. And notice, <clears throat> do they identify him as one of the presidents in your realm? They say, no, this Daniel who's a captive from the land of Judah, he's actually going against you, king. He's still making petition to his God. Maybe he's trying to start an insurrection to take over your kingdom. We're really concerned for you, king. You made this law and Daniel isn't listening to you. They're trying to act like they're concerned for the king, but the obvious reality is they're just out to tear down Daniel. Notice what Youth Instructor November 1, 1900 says, because you may wonder why Daniel just didn't hide in the closet. Some may ask, why did not Daniel lift his soul to God in secret prayer? Would not the Lord, knowing the situation, have excused his servant from kneeling openly before him? Or why did he not kneel before God in some secret place where his enemies could not find him? Isn't that a reasonable question? You know, just go hide for 30 days. You're, you're so high up in the kingdom, if you... If you pray openly, you'll be put to death, and then the influence you have in the kingdom will be destroyed. You won't be able to show the principles of the God of heaven to the nation. So why don't you just compromise, take 30 days off, don't worry about it, and then come back to the Lord after that. Continuing on, Daniel knew that the God of Israel must be honored before the Babylonian nation, the nation of Medo-Persia. He knew that neither kings nor nobles had any right to come between him and his duty to God. He must bravely maintain his religious principles before all men, for he was God's witness. Therefore he prayed, as was his want or custom, as if no decree had been made. 
You know, notice what Daniel is concerned about here again. He knew that the God of Israel must be honored before the Babylonian nation. And again, he didn't come to this situation and say, will I lose my salvation if I stop praying openly? Maybe God will understand, and then if he doesn't even, I can just pray and ask for forgiveness. Again, that's not the way Daniel thought. And remember, Daniel's name means God is my judge. The way Daniel thought was, my decision will be made with respect to what brings honor and glory to God's name. And if I change the way that I worship, I will be actually honoring the king of Medo-Persia above the God of heaven, and that can never be. I am God's witness. And once I compromise on this, the other leaders of this nation will figure that I will start compromising on other things that they will try. And I'm not going to give them the first inch. And if that means that I lose my life, so be it. I've seen God deliver me in chapter 1 on the issue of diet. I saw how a death decree was made when the other wise men couldn't tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream in chapter 2. I saw how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered in chapter 3 and how the Son of God walked in their midst. And I know that if God wants to deliver me now, He will deliver me now as well. But I'm not going to compromise even if I lose my life. Let's continue on. Let's read now verses 14 through 17. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Notice the king was upset with himself. He's like, I'm the one that signed the decree. I'm the one that has to take responsibility for it. Why didn't I see the trap that was being laid for my faithful servant Daniel? Notice the king liked Daniel. He wanted to save him. But because the law of the Medes and the Persians couldn't be changed, he couldn't save him. Notice verse 15. Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king establisheth may be changed. So now these guys, they're not acting so much like they care for the king anymore. They're actually putting some political pressure on him and saying, you know what? The principle of our kingdom is you can't change a law. And that principle of the kingdom is greater than you, king. And if you go against that principle, we will have the power to take you down and remove you from your position of authority. So now not only are, are they against Daniel, they're showing their true colors against the king as well. So, verse 16, Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. Notice, Darius the Mede demonstrates faith. The king of Medo-Persia, his life had been so positively affected by Daniel that he exercises faith, that he expresses faith and says, your God whom you serve continually, not sporadically, but all the time, he will deliver you. And then verse 17, And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. 
Now notice how Daniel's enemies react. This is Youth Instructor again, November 1, 1900. Full of satanic exultation, Daniel's enemies returned to their homes. They drank freely of wine and congratulated themselves on their success and putting out of the way one whom they could not bribe to forsake the path of integrity. You know, this is how Satan works. When the righteous stand for what is right and for what is true, Satan will work through people who only care about their temporal prosperity, who only care about being exalted with respect to the things of this earth, and he will work through people who do not follow God, and he will work through them so that they will try to tear down the, the people of God. And here they thought that they had destroyed God's saint, Daniel. They thought that for sure, by the time they were drinking their wine and having their party, that Daniel had been eaten alive. Let's continue. Let's read verses 18 through 23. The, then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting, Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. You know, he must have really liked Daniel. He couldn't sleep all night. And Verse 20, And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions? Notice, again, Darius identifies Daniel as a servant of the living God. And he says, as a servant of the living God, you serve him continually. And now he's asking, is your God, whom you serve, able to deliver you? And notice verse 21. Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. And notice, Daniel is respectful. He's not saying, hey, wicked king, you know, you threw me down here. Yeah, I'm still here. Why do you even care that I'm down here? Respectfully, he addresses the king and says, O king, live forever. What a godly man. How many of us could have it in our hearts to have such a spirit of benevolence and forgiveness to someone who had signed a decree that put us into harm's way, that should have destroyed us. Notice verse 22. And here is Daniel's testimony, once again, of the faithfulness of God. Verse 22. My God has sent his angel and hath shut the lion's mouths that they have not hurt me. So Daniel is saying, hey, he's not saying, yeah, you know, the, the lions didn't seem to be hungry tonight and I, I barely got out of here, but I'm thankful that somehow I survived. No, he gives all the credit and the glory to God. Amen. My God hath sent his angel and hath shut the lion's mouths that they have not hurt me forasmuch as before him innocency was found in me and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. So Daniel saying, you know, king, and I know that I haven't done anything against you nor have I done anything against God. And because of that, I have been delivered. 
So notice, Daniel is basically saying, if there had been something wrong with me, if I had something in me against the true God of heaven, if something had been in me where I had done you wrong, God could not have sent his angel to deliver me. But because I truly was innocent, God could send his angel to protect me. In verse 23, Then was the king exceeding glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God. Once again, the God of heaven, the true God of heaven, showed that his power and might was greater than any devisings of the kingdoms of this world. God showed in chapter 1 that if you follow the diet that he set forth in scripture, you will have fairer and fatter flesh than those who eat of the Babylonian diet. He showed in Daniel chapter 2 that the wise men of this world cannot understand the things of God. It was only the prophet Daniel who could interpret the dream. God showed in Daniel chapter 3 that you can threaten his people with death, but when his people, the three Hebrews, were faithful, he delivered them from the fiery furnace and sent his son to walk in their midst. And here in Daniel chapter 6, when a decree was made that made a law of man go up against the law of God, God delivered his faithful servant again for choosing to obey God rather than man. And then we read the end of the story. Verses 24 through 28. And the king commanded, and they brought those men which had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children, and their wives, and the lions had the mastery of them, and break all their bones in pieces, or ever they came at the bottom of the den. Now, now notice in the King James words it so that you may not totally pick up what it's saying, but what it's saying is, is that all of these men, their wives and their children, they were torn in pieces before they hit the ground. And what that tells us is these lions weren't full, they weren't, it wasn't like when Daniel came in that they were like, you know what, we've had such good food recently, we'll just take the night off, we're fine. Daniel gets taken out, the people that accused him get tossed in, and before they even hit the ground, they're gone. That shows you how much ferocity those lions had, and it shows you the miracle of God and how Daniel's life was saved. So you can't say that the lions were uninterested. God sent his angel to protect Daniel. Continuing on, verse 25. Then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth, and he worketh signs and wonders in heaven and in earth, who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now notice the power of Daniel's life. 
We saw in Daniel chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was saved. He will be in the kingdom of heaven. A Hebrew captive comes to the courts of Babylon and God works through him so that he demonstrates God's character to a pagan king and the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar eventually accepts God as the true God of heaven and he writes a chapter in scripture in Daniel chapter 4 and we will see Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom. Not only did God work through Daniel to save Nebuchadnezzar, God also worked through Daniel to bring salvation to Darius, the next king in the, uh, after Babylon. Here, Darius makes a decree that goes to the whole world. And the whole world hears about the true God of heaven because Daniel chose to be faithful. You know, if Daniel had compromised and said, I'll just hide in my closet for 30 days, this decree would not have gone to the whole world. But because Daniel was faithful, all the people who were living at that time could have heard about the faithfulness of the Hebrew God. And God wants to use us in the same way. Now we're going to go to our end time applications. Because as we've seen throughout the stories in the first six chapters, there are applications, uh, there's, well there's the interpretation of the actual story and what happened, but there are applications to make for the time in which we live. Let's look at the first one. The political leaders of Medo-Persia could find no fault or error in Daniel. We saw that in verse 4 of chapter 6. And Ellen White says in Sanctified Life, page 23, the life of Daniel is an inspired illustration of what constitutes a sanctified character. And we may say, well, you know what? Every once in a while, once in a blue moon, God has had someone like a Daniel who's that faithful. But, boy, I, I just don't think I can have that kind of a record in my life. It's interesting. In Luke 23, verse 14, when Jesus was on trial, it says Pilate could find no fault in Jesus. Pilate comes back to the Jewish leaders and he says, I find no fault in him. They're accusing him and Pilate could find no fault in him. Now, it's interesting in Revelation chapter 14, verse 5, it talks about how God's last day people, the 144,000, are found to be without fault before the throne of God. Now, here's the interesting point. You remember, Daniel, his name, means God is my judge. The 144,000 are found without fault before what? before the throne of God, which means that they have had to stand before God in the judgment. God is their judge. And remember, Daniel, his name means God is my judge. The 144,000 stand before God as their judge, and they are found to be without fault. 
So if you want to know how to be found without fault, look to the life of Daniel. And notice, and, and I know you're familiar with the verse Jude 24, but Jude 24 says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you what? Faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. So here we see a promise that in, in the Bible that says God can keep you from falling and as he keeps you from falling, he will present you faultless before the throne of God. So the experience of Daniel is not a once-in-a-world experience. It wasn't just for Daniel. This is the experience that all of us can have if we believe in God and become connected to God the way Daniel was connected. If we choose, if we purpose in our hearts that we will always follow the Lord no matter what happens. So that's our first application. Second application. The political leaders realized the only way they could find something wrong with Daniel would be to force him to choose between following God's law versus the laws of men. Disobedience of man's law would lead to death. So they're like, we'll get him to choose between God's law versus man's law, and when he disobeys man's law, then we can have a decree that will put him to death. Application. God's last day people will also be found to be without fault and the only way they can be condemned will be through civil legislation which we've studied already in this series which are Sunday laws contrary to God's law which says that the seventh day is the Sabbath and those who break these Sunday laws they will be punished with death. Like Daniel, they will be faithful unto death and worship and honor the true God according to his law. And we're reminded in Acts 5.29 that we should obey God rather than man. Our next application. You know, talking about the Sunday law, we, we talked about it really already in Daniel chapter 3. The image that Babylon set up, you had the political leaders of the world coming together and Nebuchadnezzar tells all of the leaders and all those assembled, bow down and worship my image. Now, it is true that those who would not bow down would be faced with death just as Daniel was faced with death in Daniel chapter 6. The one difference between Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6 is that in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar was not saying, from here on after, you can only worship my image. He was just saying, you have to worship the image this time. But if you want to go back and worship your other gods after this ceremony, go right ahead. But you have to worship this god this time. So there are four stages that the Sunday law will have as they come through. The first one is to say you can't work on Sunday. And then they will go on to say after, after they've tried that, they'll say, you know what? You need to actually honor Sunday by worshiping on that day. And if you still want to worship on your Sabbath day, you can do that as well. But you have to honor this, this Sunday, this day that we say you should worship. 
So these are the first two stages, and you can kind of see that in Daniel 3 with a golden image, but then it progresses. Then, it's, then they say you can't worship on Sabbath, you can only worship on Sunday, and finally, if you're not worshiping on Sunday and if you're worshiping on Sabbath, we will put you to death. And that mirrors what happened to Daniel in chapter 6 of Daniel, where the decree says you can only worship the king, you can't worship any other gods, and if you do worship anyone else, we will put you to death. So it's interesting, even in the book of Daniel, you can see how the progression of what happens at the end of time takes place in the stories. Now let's continue on our next application. Daniel is condemned to death by a law that cannot be changed and thrown into the lion's den for choosing to worship God over the laws of men. God miraculously spares his life when death seemed certain. At th and then End time application, God's people will be miraculously spared by God when a death decree is made to enforce the Sunday line. We're actually going to see how this develops in our study of Daniel 11. So keep coming back because we'll show in detail how this develops. And Ellen White has a statement in The Great Controversy, page 635. When the protection of human law shall be withdrawn from those who honor the law of God, there will be in different lands a simultaneous movement for their destruction. As the time appointed in the decree draws near, the people will conspire to root out the hated sect. It will be determined to strike in one night a decisive blow which shall utterly, utterly silence the voice of dissent and reproof. The people of God, some in prison cells, some hidden in solitary retreats in the forests and the mountains still plead for divine protection, while in every quarter companies of armed men, urged on by hosts of evil angels, are preparing for the work of death. It is now, in the hour of utmost extremity, that the God of Israel will interpose for the deliverance of his chosen. Just as God delivered Daniel from the lion's den, he will deliver his chosen, those who are faithful, those who do not honor the laws of men above the laws of God. And then she goes on. With shouts of triumph, jeering, and imprecation, throngs of evil men are about to rush upon their prey, when, lo, a dense blackness, deeper than the darkness of the night, falls upon the earth. Then a rainbow, shining with the glory from the throne of God, spans the heavens and seems to encircle each praying company. The angry multitudes are suddenly arrested. Their mocking cries die away. The objects of their murderous rage are forgotten. With fearful forebodings, they gaze upon the symbol of God's covenant and long to be shielded from its overpowering brightness. So God will deliver his saints. Now let's go on to our next application. Daniel was a servant of the living God who served God continually. We saw that in verses 16 and 20 of Daniel 6. It's interesting, in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, let's turn there. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, we read, 
And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Notice verse 2. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Notice, at the end of time, God is going to do a work of sealing upon his people. And the people that are sealed are described as the servants of God, just as Daniel was a servant of the living God who served God continually. And in verse 4, we see that the servants of God are the 144,000. And we see that in Revelation 14, as we already saw, the 144,000 are found to be without fault before the throne of God. So those who are sealed are without fault before the throne of God. So Daniel gives us an example of how to be servants of God and how to be part of the 144,000 at the end of time. If Daniel was alive at the end of the world, he was so faithful that he would have been among that number. He was a servant of the living God. He served God continually, all the time, without compromise. And that will be the characteristics of God's last day people. So let's wrap this up here. I want to just make a connection to the six chapters that we've covered so far. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his three friends were faithful on the issue of diet. Thus, God was glorified. They put the glory of God's name above the, the temporary situation. In Daniel 2, Daniel interprets the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And God was glorified because it was shown that the, leader, that the wise men of Babylon could not demonstrate the power that God has through the servants through whom he works. Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the image. Again, God was glorified. Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that God sets up kings and removes them. He acknowledges God as the true God. And again, God was glorified. In Daniel chapter 5, Daniel interprets the handwriting on the wall and shows that prophecy is being fulfilled as Babylon fell. Thus again, God was glorified. And in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel refuses to change his worship of God based on a man-made law. And again, God was glorified. And in all these situations, Daniel and his friends, and I've mentioned this several times, were not asking, is this a salvational issue? Will I lose my standing with God if I compromise. No, they said, God is my judge. I will be faithful because I love him. And even if my, I lose my life, I know that in so doing, God's name will be glorified because he will have people who will not compromise and who will always stand for the right, though the heavens fall. Amen. They show us in these stories, in these six chapters, how we should be living in the hour of God's judgment. Because God is our judge. 
And we're going to talk about the judgment in our next presentation. But notice what the first angel's message says. And I invite you, and this is our last verse, to turn to Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. The first angel's message of Revelation 14. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and do what? Give glory to Him. In other words, fear God, give glory to Him, give glory to God the way Daniel and his three friends did consistently in the book of Daniel. No matter what Babylon tries to do, whether they try to get you to drink their wine and eat their meat, whether they get you to try to believe that they're wise men, that their theologians are better than the theologians and people from God's church, whether they get you to try to bow down and worship their image under the threat of death, or, and even to tell you you can't worship anybody else, God's people in the hour of His judgment fear God and give glory to Him because the hour of His judgment has come. And so God's people in the judgment hour, just as Daniel who knew that God was his judge, God's people in the judgment hour say, we love God. He sent His Son to die for us. He is our judge. And everything that we choose to do will be based on the fact of whether it brings glory to God or not, not whether or not it's a salvational issue. And when God has a group of people who think that way, who serve Him that way, He says, those are the type of people that I find safe to save in my kingdom. They will stand in the judgment. They will be found without fault before the throne of God. Fear God Give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him. Worship Him the way He says to worship Him, not the way Babylon says to worship Him. Because He's the Creator who made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. I'm thankful that we serve the God who loves us so much that He will deliver us just as surely as He delivered Daniel and his three friends. That's not to say that we won't have trials on this earth. Daniel and his three friends certainly went through great tribulation as they faced these challenges and trials in their life. But God was always with them. He always delivered them. And even if we are not delivered in this life, per se. Even if we lose our life in this earth, we will have the kingdom in heaven to look forward to. How many of you tonight want to say that by the grace of God, I will bring glory to God's name through His strength and power when any situation, any test comes along in my life, I will give glory to God. I will not choose to follow man. I will follow God. If you so desire, I invite you to stand with me as we pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the inspired illustration of the life of Daniel. Lord, we thank you that he gives us an example that weak, fallen, sinful human beings can actually, by your grace and power, be a powerful demonstration for your character here on this earth. 
And Lord, I pray for forgiveness where, where we have fallen short of your glory. But we thank you for the promise that not only do you forgive us of our sins, that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and you are able to keep us from falling. May we learn to trust in you, to keep our eyes on Jesus, so that we can have the experience of Daniel, of serving you continually, so that when that sealing angel of revelation comes to seal the servants of God, the 144,000, in the end of time, may we be among that number who receive that seal on our foreheads so that it can be said of us, we are without fault before the throne of God. This is my prayer in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.